House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Yeah, see, I, I yeah. told you. I was gonna, I'm just payback from yesterday. Oh, yes. <laughs> payback from yesterday. You're such a bad, bad boy. I'm, I'm a bad person. Yeah, and I'm in, I'm in lockdown. I've got COVID. I'm yeah. working, and you're treating me like that. <laughs> I love you, Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come yeah, on. I know. Yeah. Send it in money. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> the check is in the mail. Check is in the mail. And <laughs> bouncing all the way to my door. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's been a good week. Uh, we had a lot of interesting people, and now we're going to go behind scenes a little bit and uh, talk to someone that's been in the um, prosecutor seat in, mm. in L.A. County for over 40 years. Okay, so this is uh, this is serious here. Okay, so your best behavior, no anything bad. I will. Yeah, put your hands down. Um, <laughs> okay, so we're going to introduce him. He's got some books out. He's got lots of it. There's just so much going on. I I don't think he's retired, but he is. So, Mr. Ronald E. Bowers, thank you for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure, Alan. I'm glad to be on. You decided to be in in the law enforcement and you know prosecutor for all these years. L.A. County. What would I, I have to say? What what draws a person into a job like that? What do you, what is it that about you, or what is it about the job that made you kind of go that way um, 40, 50 years ago? I was going to UCLA uh, back in the fifties, sixties, uh, and uh, I was a senior, and I was in political science, and you can't get a job. There's no such thing as an occupation of a political scientist, except maybe a professor. So I had to make a decision, either to go become an MBA uh, or go to law school, and I decided to go to law school. So that's how I got into law, was uh, <laughs> I had no choice. I, I had to find a job, and uh, that seemed like a logical one. So I went to law school. I did very well. I went to USC Law School, which is across town from UCLA, and then I had to get a job. So I started out as a um, corporate counsel in Beverly Hills. I worked for Litton Industry. It was a big conglomerate, but they never gave me the big cases. Uh, and I said, look, uh, I'd like to do the big big cases. And they said, well, Ron, you have no experience. You're just out of law school in a couple of years. Uh, we can't afford to have you do the big cases. I said, well, if you let me do some cases, I'll have some experience. One of the senior partners pulled me aside. He says, look, you know, what you have to do is you have to go with a government agency and get litigation experience. And I said, oh, okay. He said, well, you really should go with the county council uh, and, you know, learn about the civil cases. And then after two years, you come back and, you know, you're going to be worth a lot of money to us and you're going to get paid a lot of money. It all sounded great to me, so I went to interview for the county council, uh, which is the one that handles the civil uh, litigation for the county of Los Angeles. And at that time, they had uh, all three agencies holding uh, interviews at the same time, meaning 
the county council, the district attorney's office, and the public defender. So I go to the interview, and I'm, you know, trying to pitch myself for the county council and doing my best, and it was over, and I left the interview. And I walked out of the interview to get across the street to get my car that I'd parked there, and a gentleman from the district attorney's office came up from behind me, and he said, Mr. Bowers, Mr. Bowers, are you interested in the district attorney's office? And I turned around, looked at him, and I said, well, of course not, you know. I'm not that type of person. And, uh, you know, I certainly would never think of that. I'm a civil attorney. And he said, why not? I said, well, look, I'm going to go with the county council's office because I want litigation experience. I want to be in court. I want to learn how to try cases. And I said, you know, that's what I'm looking for. And he said, I can get you in court tomorrow in the district attorney's office. I said, you can? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, come over to the DA's office and meet the district attorney. So I walked across the street to the Hall of Justice, went in, met the district attorney, and they said, we'll get you in court tomorrow. And that's exactly what I wanted. So I went with the district attorney's office, not because I wanted to go with the district attorney's office, but I wanted litigation experience. And that's how it all became. Alan, it wasn't uh, pre-planned, uh, but there I was. Alan, your next question should be, well, did you stay two years and did you go back to Beverly Hills? And the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> I started working for the DA's office, and uh, needless to say, it's very exciting work. A lot of things are happening all at once, and you learn a lot. You learn so much about uh, handling cases, uh, supervising staff, uh, there's so many things that you're doing all the time. It's very demanding, very taxing, very stressful, but it becomes a kind of a way of life, and you like it. You enjoy it. So to answer your question about that, I didn't stay two years. I stayed 43 years. I never left the DA's office after I, I first started uh, back in, I think it was 1967. So I handled thousands and thousands of cases, and the Los Angeles County uh, DA's office is the largest uh, in the United States. Well, what, what exactly keeps you in something for so long? Um, is it the, um, you know, the, is it the continued growth? Do you continually learn, pick up things? Is there a challenge every day for 40 years, or is it, what, what is it that, that, kept you there so long? Well, there were several things. Uh, one, it is always a learning experience because each case is a little bit different. And you, every time you try a case, you learn, oh, that's something new I should have considered. Uh, so that is exciting. But there's another part of it, and that is that you're doing something for the community. It depends what type of person you are. I mean, if, if you really are concerned about your neighborhood, uh, you want it to be a safe neighborhood. You you don't want criminals uh, violating people's uh, homes or their persons. So uh, by getting in there and doing an effective job, you can make a very safe community. And that's the advantage I think many prosecutors have, is if you do the job and you do it well, you have a, a safe community that your neighbors uh they're not victims. They're, they're able to go about their lives uh, in a, a safe way. And 
that's rewarding. So what I'm saying, Alan, is there's a cause and effect. If you do your job well, uh, the effect is immediate. You can see the number of burglaries are less, the thefts are less. There is less uh, crime uh, as far as, uh, you know, force, violence. So that is, I, I don't know if, I would say it's more of a satisfaction. You feel very good about what you're doing, even though it's hard work, very demanding. You feel good at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month. So I think that rewarding part is what kept me, you know, with the DA's office so long. You know, everything's on TV and, and all over the place. You're broadcasting every case from, you know, grandma stealing a pair of shoes to you name it, and they show it. And and there's a lot of angles that will make it look like um, the prosecutors are, I don't know how to say this, not as um, caring as they should be. Or sometimes they get it wrong, but they still don't admit it. Now, of course, I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying that there's there's that persona that comes out. Um, do you think that's fair, or do you think that it's just kind of misrepresented, or what, what, what's your opinion on that? Well, as a prosecutor, you have to uh, be fair-minded, and you have to uh, deal with what you're faced with. And a lot of uh, the public doesn't see everything that's going on. Uh, the thing is that we never sufficiently uh, fund our courts. We never have enough courts. So you can't try all the cases. Uh, like on a typical day, I would have maybe 50 to 75 cases uh, set for that day. And I couldn't, you know, there's no way you can, uh, you know, have jury trials in 75 cases. You have to somehow work them out. And you get to the point where there's an end to the day. You know, by 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, you've got to handle that calendar. You have to go through it all. Uh, the public may not like to know that, hey, you're going to have to deal those cases. You can't try them all because there aren't enough courts, uh, because the courts are not funded to try all cases. So it makes it very challenging, uh, and you say, well, does it make you look cold and callous? Well, you have to deal with those cases uh, in a fair impartial manner, and you do. You do. You, you find a way of handling them in a, in a way... There's another part of it, Helen, you have to realize, and, and that is our system. What is our system? Um, we have an adversary system in the United States. We have a jury trial system. Uh, why? Well, it goes back to the days of the colony. Uh, it was, you know, King George, you know. The colonists uh, wanted there to be a buffer between the government, the, the royals, and themselves. And they put in these safeguards, uh, check and balance, you could say, in the Bill of Rights. It's very challenging uh, for a prosecutor to convince 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt that a person has committed that crime and there's sufficient facts to prove that. That's not an easy task. And, and how do you go about doing it? Now, you could say, well, maybe we should change the system. And Alan, the system isn't going to be changed. The, uh, you still have to get a unanimous verdict, 12 people. In most states, there's a few states that are a little less than that. But just think of it, friends. you got 12 friends, and you're all getting together, and you're trying to decide, you know, what time to have, go to dinner. Can you get 12 people to agree on anything? No, you can't. But 
you have to do it as a prosecutor. You have to take 12 people who are the jurors, and you've got to explain the facts to them, and you want them to understand those facts, and you want to see how, by applying the law, that this defendant has committed the offense beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty. So what I'm trying to explain to you is it's not an easy system that we have uh, brought down all these years, but it works. It works for us. We like it. Uh, and, you know, you have to accept what you have, and that is that we have an adversary system where both sides are fighting against each other. It's not like you all join hands or the defense attorney is going to help you. No, they're taking the other side. The prosecutor has to go in there with the facts that they have from uh, law enforcement and put the evidence on. So you're saying, Alan, that's kind of a little cold? Well, maybe, maybe that's a little cold to you, but that's the way it is. Well, well, how do you triage those cases to know which one should go to trial? Well, there's a number of factors that come into play on that. Uh, obviously, you can't try all the cases. You're going to take the cases where you think uh, that you have a, uh, the best uh, as far as evidence, meaning witnesses who are willing to come to court. Now, there's many cases that you have. You know, you know the person is guilty. There's no question they're guilty of the crime. But will witnesses come to court? Will the evidence be analyzed and available at the time that you have to try it in court? Uh, so those are factors you have to. And there are other things that you factor in is the type of crime. Certain types of crimes are going to be very hard to persuade 12 jurors to convict. Others uh, would be easier. So that's the evaluation process. And a lot of other things go into it, and that is the makeup of the defendant. Now, if the defendant has a long record of committing similar crimes, being convicted in the past, uh, you're going you're gonna to concentrate on that one because there's more at stake. Now, if a person has no record at all, you might, that is the type of one you might be willing to take a chance on, uh, that they will not commit crimes in the future and the uh, community will be safe. So, yes, there are a lot of factors that uh, you want to consider, the weight of the evidence as well as the defendant's background. You've obviously stayed into it because even after you retired, now you've gone into uh, writing uh, a number of books, um, I haven't seen someone write this much since me. <laughs> um, so what got you going into the writing? Like what was, what was, what was it for you that um, after you step away from the prosecution in the L.A. County that you're going to sit down and actually write out a lot of the details, a lot of the cases, a lot of the events, and put it out there for everyone to read? Like what, what, what was the draw for you to do that? Well, Alan, the thing about uh, being in the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, uh, so many cases uh, came in, and I had to deal with them at various stages, meaning uh, in the court, uh, trying the case as a supervisor, and then in charge of uh, the various functions of the District Attorney's Office. So you have a lot of them, and you see so many of them. And my first book that I wrote, uh, the title is Meet Me for murder, but what it was about uh, was Christy Johnson was a young uh, lady who came out from Michigan, and she came to Los Angeles 
and she wanted to go into the, uh, well, the movie business. Uh, she had worked uh, on a case with Sandra Bullock, and she got, you know, hooked on it. It was exciting. She wanted to be in uh, the entertainment business, especially in the movies. So she was always looking for that opportunity, and she came and worked for Warner Brothers at one time as a makeup artist, uh, so she'd get her foot in the door. That didn't quite work out, but she, you know, kind of got out of it, and she decided to go back to school. Okay, what happened with Christy Johnson, she was um, at the Century City Mall, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills area, and a man came up to her and said, you know, you're so so attractive, you should be in movies. Well, she heard that, and the man said, I'm doing a sequel for a James Bond movie. And she listened, and he said, well, we're doing an audition this evening. We're doing an audition. And she listened more, and he said, you know, you're a natural. You're going to, you would get the part. You will be the next James Bond girl. Well, you can imagine what a impact that had on Christy Johnson. Anyway, she decided to go on that audition in the Hollywood Hills. She never was seen alive again. It was maybe a, almost a month later her body was found uh, on one of the ravines in the Hollywood Hills. It was tragic what happened to Christy Johnson. And it made me think, you know, I worked on that case, you know, put the case together. I didn't try the case, but I, I did a lot of work uh, in the preparation. And then another case came across my desk. I think it was a Rademacher case. Another case, a young model, uh, she went on a, a photo shoot, a photo shoot up in the mountains. And, you know, we found her body, oh, more than a year later. She'd been raped and murdered. I had so many of these cases that I saw, and I thought, why isn't anybody telling these young women what they should be doing to protect themselves so they don't become a victim? So my first book uh, was Meet Me for Murder. The reason is that in the last chapter, I spell out what a young woman can do to protect themselves so they will not be a victim. And so the purpose of my book was to inform, and it was. It was very successful. I did it with uh, Don Lasseter, who was a very famous uh, true crime writer. He and I put it together. It was very successful, and you know, a lot of people contacted us and thanked us for doing something that was creative. It wasn't just an interesting story about Christy Johnson, but it was it had material in there that anyone, a young person to read, or even if a mother or a grandmother or an aunt explained that to uh, a story-eyed young teenager coming to Hollywood, uh, that could save their life. And it did, save many lives, and I was very proud of it. So that was the way I got started, and then I wrote a number of other books with Don Lasseter um, and did that for a number of years. Uh, so that's that's the start of my writing career. To relive a lot of these cases, too, and, and after already being through them the first time, how, what kind of a toll would that take on you um, personally? Or can you keep that completely separate? Well, I think after so many years, you realize you have to keep it separate because 
if you become emotional about it, you're not going to be doing uh, your job. Because, as I say, uh, when you prosecute a case, and I put together many, many, many homicide cases, uh, you have to, you know, think clearly. You have to be focused on the job of how do I present this evidence to the jury so that the jury will do their job of, you know, assessing it and convicting the person and getting it, you know, that killer off the street. So there is a separation. After a while, at the beginning, of course, you know, you, you felt an emotional attachment. But I think with the Christie Johnson one, it was more than emotional attachment. It was somebody has to do something. Somebody needs to say something. And I felt, you know, uh, by working with Don Laster and myself, we could do something constructive. So it started out doing that, and I say that there's a detachment. Uh, you cannot get emotionally involved in each one of these cases. The way that um, trials are filmed and presented to the public live all the time, and and I have I, I understand the point of view of um, it's everyone's right to see what goes on in the courtrooms, and that's all good and true. Um, but sometimes I, I question about how how much invasion that, that the people doing the trial can take, and that not only means the prosecutor, but everyone in the case, you know, the defense as well, and even the judge, and in some cases some of the uh, people involved in the case. Uh, you know, and of course we've seen things from O.J. Simpson to now it's, you know, Johnny Depp, everything is televised. But I don't know how you can do a job and still be yourself and do it properly when you're being watched. Like if you're on a case like, you know, O.J. Simpson or something like this, and so every time you step out of your house, there's people taking your picture. You get into your car, you go to the courtroom, you come back, and, they, and, they, and everywhere you turn, they're talking about, well, did you see what he was wearing? Not very professional. Did you see his hair? You hear what he said? So you, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know how you can take that kind of pressure and still expect to do your job properly. Uh, you're right on track, and I couldn't agree with you more. And almost all prosecutors I worked with, and I worked with some very, very good, I mean, uh, extraordinary uh, attorneys. And, no, we do not think and do not believe it's a good idea to televise these cases, and especially gavel to gavel. Now, okay, you can do the thing of, okay, with the argument, or the opening statement and the argument, oh, maybe, okay, that can be televised. But, you know, I think most prosecutors will tell you that, you know, we're forced to um, put these cases on because uh, various groups, uh, for through the media, the media forces these things to be televised. And it's not a good thing. For the simple reason, you know, I don't know what people are thinking by saying that it doesn't affect a trial. It does affect a trial because it affects everyone there. And I'll start from the very top, the judge, the way they act. It affects the attorneys and a lot of defense attorneys. They like the notoriety. They like all the publicity. It's going to get them a lot of clients in the future. And then you take it to the next level, and that is the witnesses. Just think, if you are a witness and you have to come in and testify and you know every word that you say, everyone is going to know about, 
uh, every person that you've ever met in your life are going to, oh, you know, when did he stop beating his wife? You know, all of a sudden, everybody hears these things that you as a witness, you know, don't want everybody to know about. So witnesses are affected by it. Uh, the other is jurors are affected by it. Even though they may not be televised, they are going to be under a lot of pressure from people in the community is, oh, yeah, what's, you know, what are you going to, guys going to do? Did you notice that or did you see that? So I think it's very, it's a shame that we've gotten into the habit of making uh, jury trials entertainment. Uh, I disagree with it. I think most prosecutors uh, disagree that there's a place for cameras in the courtroom, but it doesn't have to be gavel to gavel. And that's what happened uh, in the um, Simpson case. And look at uh, what happened to it. And, uh, you know, I worked on the Menendez brothers case. And that one, the first one was televised. Uh, but when I was brought in to work on uh, the Menendez case, uh, that case was not televised, the second trial. And both of the brothers were convicted. Uh, the jurors didn't have the pressure. The witnesses didn't have the pressure. Uh, it was much better to try the case without gavel-to-gavel coverage. So my point is, Alan, you are right right on target. It's something uh, that needs to be looked at, and most likely, you know, it's like guardrails. You've got to have boundaries. If you're going to have cameras in the courtroom, there may be appropriate places, but televising witnesses' testimony, uh, I disagree with it. It takes a long time to get used to doing your job in the public. It's not something, well, for some people it's easy, but it, it takes a little bit of time. And once you get to where you can be yourself, like like live on air, I can do this and I can I can do it now. But, you know, years ago, uh, it, it doesn't, it isn't just something you, you wake up and can do. It happens over time. So to all of a sudden be thrown onto you all of a sudden, like, wow. Um, and you start questioning everything you do, <laughs> what you're wearing and <laughs> and what your hair looks like, or if someone take gets pictures of you from twenty years ago on the beach or something and I, I, I don't know. I just um with no experience it's funny too, the it's always the defense attorneys that have experience being uh on T V, you know, like Ethley Bailey and people like that. Um Well, you have to see, Alan, they, they crave it. They crave it because that is uh, going to get them a lot of publicity, and it's going to give them a good livelihood if they're well-known and they're seen on television. Prosecutors, no, we don't want to be seen on television. Uh, that's not our job. Our job is to present the evidence to the jury, and we're not we're not part of the entertainment. Hopefully, the courts can be a little more realistic about it. They've learned a lot in doing it, but uh, we had another one, the Phil Spector case. And likewise, I did a lot of work in this Phil, Phil Spector case. And the first trial was a media circus. And, you know, it didn't, it ended up a hung jury. And then we tried it without, uh, the media. And it, and the case went very well. And it went very quickly and he got convicted. So, uh, I wish the courts, uh, would not feel the pressure from the media. The media likes it. Why? It's free, free entertainment. Uh, they don't have to pay writers. They don't have to uh, pay actors. You know, they're able to put this on and get a lot of uh, audience uh, without having to put out much money. Well, I'm just wondering, how did you keep the media 
out of those uh, second trials where, where the media wasn't involved? Well, the uh, both judges, uh, you know, they thought about what they had done, and they ruled against allowing them in. Before, I think the, the media, um, it might have been, I, I don't know, one of the uh, court television things had requested it, demanded it, and the court gave in and did it. And the defense was kind of, uh, they liked the idea, of, I think, of the publicity. Uh, but, you know, after the hung jury, the judge recognized, no, this is this was not a good thing. And I remember the judge, you know, in his ruling, originally when he uh, said, okay, they can have cameras in the courtroom, he said, oh, I can control it. I can control it because if, if they don't uh, abide by it, I can turn turn it off. No, it's not that easy. Once the media gets in there and the public is following it, it's virtually impossible for the judge to say, well, I think you went too far on this. You know, I told you not to televise that, and you did. Uh, but there's no repercussions. So, yeah, it's one of the areas, Alan, that is very controversial. I mean, it's fun. I guess it's reality TV and people have something to talk about. But yeah, I don't think it's really doing the job as well when we do it this way. So... You know, and the Menendez brothers. Look at the look at the backlash now, and look at the um, they're sort of trying to make a uh, get out of jail attempt now, and um, a lot of it will be driven by the media. You know, the, uh, we're terrible people. <laughs> well, Alan, you know, I, I don't like to lump everybody together in the same thing. It's just uh, you mentioned the Menendez brothers case. You know, I wrote a book on it. Uh, you know. And it's just interesting how the media spins that. Uh, it would be nice if they would report on the, the true facts. Uh, we did the first trial, and, you know, the whole thing was uh, that they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, we did it. But this is the reason we did it. And then when it, we got the hung jury, and then we tried it the second time, uh, I did a lot of work on that uh, with Dave Kahn, who was the prosecutor on it. And it was just amazing that Lyle Menendez had worked with a, uh, a writer and had told the writer, and it was all on uh, tape recorded, where they admitted, yeah, we did it, and no, we weren't molested. No, there was no molesting going on. That was all made up. My brother and I made all of that up. Well, he couldn't testify in the second trial because we had this book that he had, you know, helped publish saying that, you know, they made the story up about being molested. So there's, it's just interesting how that comes alive again. And there's so many people, the rich kids of Beverly Hills is my book on that. And, you know, it spells it out what happened. It's factual, but no, right now it's a clamor. Well, these poor, poor molested boys. You know, you know, they've been mistreated. Let's get them out of prison. So uh, it's a, a lot of spinning, a lot of spinning by the media. Yeah, yeah, media. They're terrible people. <laughs> you know, I think, well, I uh, because I had um, two years ago on the show, we had that, oh, and I can't remember his name, and he wrote a book about it, and he's doing a lot of stuff with them now. And that was the number one rated show we had over all sorts of other big events. And I couldn't believe how many hundreds of thousands of people were into that show, that episode, over and over again. And um, it just, it, it, but it's the way it's presented, I guess. 
you know it's just it's how it's done i think that would be a good show to have you on uh for a full episode and talk about you know because i i I think it's something that's still really relevant which i'm not sure why but it's certainly still really you're right about that because i had a german writer a gentleman from germany i worked with him for uh for months and uh he was very much into it wrote a uh a big, big article uh, in Germany. It was very popular uh, where, you know, they were saying, you know, how mistreated they were and how unfair the judicial system was. And they they believed it. And but I said, well, what about all of this? Well, we, uh, and they just slide over, you know, the facts. Okay, that's fine. I, you have your agenda. And I see your agenda is that you're trying to, you know, get certain people out of prison, and this is your way of going about it. So, yeah, you have to kind of accept it that some things, some cases take on a life of their own, and the Menendez brothers certainly has. Your book, Serial Killers of Los Angeles, that fits uh, the L.A. market here really well. Um, Now, you're talking about some of the biggest uh, cases that were going on uh, in really about a 10-year period, I mean, 77 to 87. do you have kind of an idea of why there were so many serial killers in that short of time? Well, Alan, <laughs> you raise an interesting question because that is, it's an interesting question in the sense, what is the answer to it? Now, let me just explain to you about the book, Serial Killers of Los Angeles. Why did I write it? Um, I was at home and I got a phone call from a young lady in London and she called and said, uh, Mr. Bowers, we need your help. Uh, and I said, oh, okay. She said, we're doing a documentary on William Bonin, the freeway killer, and we need you to help us on it. And I said, well, uh, be more than happy to help you. I didn't try that case. That uh, uh, Sterling uh, Norris tried it. And I said, I was trying a death penalty case in Pomona at the time. So I'm familiar with uh, the case, but uh, I didn't try it. And she said, but we need you. And I said, no, get, get some of the detective, get somebody else to do it that had personal knowledge. And then she very quietly on the phone said, Mr. Barge, you don't understand. You're the only person alive who knows anything about the serial killers. And then I, I realized these people in London and a lot of European people are fascinated by the serial killers of Los Angeles. And, you know, we kind of here in Los Angeles, you know, just accepted, okay, that was part of history. Then I realized that I'm most likely the last person alive who know about all of these serial killers. I never wrote about them because I didn't think it was that interesting. You know, uh, okay, some people like blood and gore, I understand, but they're, they're very bizarre cases. And I didn't think it was really worth writing about because there's other interesting stories. So I did. After a number of people from Europe uh, coming after me and saying, somebody, somebody needs to do this, and then I realized maybe I am the last person to do it. So that's why I wrote it. And it's a fascinating book because of, like, the freeway killers. There were three of them. Three, almost at the same time, you know, we have Carney, uh, that went on for a long time, almost 10 years. He was doing it, you know, Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Bernardino. Didn't get caught, went on and on. 
And then we had Kraft, Randy Kraft, uh, Orange County, Los Angeles. Did it for a long time, didn't get caught. And then William Bonin came along, and that was the one that tipped the scales because the, our office, the DA's office of L.A. County, we prosecuted that case as well as Orange County later on with several of theirs. So isn't it interesting why you had three freeway killers all at the same time um, in the same area? Now, I, I have my theory. In my book, I explain. It's, it's a long story. There's not a simple answer as to why they were doing it. And you kind of group them all together. It was all homosexual uh, where all of these gentlemen would drive along and pick up hitchhikers. And at that time, um, depending on your age, we used to hitchhike. That's the way we used to get around. Back in the 50s and 60s, uh, people don't hitchhike. Uh, like they used to. And it was easy for these uh, men to look around and pick up, and the one, I think it was Randy Graff, would go down to Camp Pendleton. Well, there were a lot of Marines, you know, and uh, basic training, and they would get out, and they would need a ride, and they would be hitchhiking. It was always easy to pick them up. And then they would either get them drunk or do different things. Uh, so that was an interesting group to start out with. But then I, you know, when you get into it, then you get the next group, which were the women. You have the Hillside Strangler. He gets involved, uh, Bianchi and Bono. And the one that you don't hear as much about is Bittaker and Norris. And where I live right now, I'm looking out right from my window here. And I see the Glendora Hills where Bittaker and Norris would take these young girls from Hermosa Beach, take them up there and then just torture them to death, uh, rape them, do all sexual things, and take photographs, uh, Polaroid photographs of them. So bizarre, bizarre uh, serial killers. And then, you know, if that wasn't enough, we had the Hollywood Slayer, the Sunset uh, Killer. <laughs> you know, he would pick up the prostitutes, and then, you know, he would, you know, have the sexual act, then shoot them in the head. Why all of these people, and they're all at the same time, and then, you know, Richard Ramirez comes along, and that really gets publicity on the case, and then we, oh, this is in 1985, and people really, oh, we do have serial killers, and oh, this is a serious issue. So it's very interesting when you get into it, and you see how long it was going, and uh, so many people were killed. These kind of killers were going on a lot in America, period, in the 70s. It wasn't just them, and even the late 60s. Um, I know we had um, a professor, history professor on, um, Peter Bronsky, who's written a lot of books, and he suggests it's a lot to do with the war and the way that, uh, you know, the, the fathers that came home treated their sons, and he gets into all that detail and stuff. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure your thoughts on that. Well, Alan, that you pick up on. If you read my book, you would see that that's one of <laughs> yes, one of several things. And the Vietnam War had a real effect on these serial killers. Uh, some of them went to the war and they were in it, and some were trained uh, to be uh, soldiers in the Vietnam War. So that is a little bit about the makeup, what made them killers, 
But one of them we had, I think Randy Kraft, he went to Claremont College. I mean, he was uh, a well-learned, uh, uh, graduated from college in economics. You had a whole gamut of different types of people. So, and, and then, of course, when you get to Ramirez, who is really not well-educated at all, uh, very, very uh, kind of marginal, you know, on the bottom of society, all different pipe types of people. And it, it's fascinating, just fascinating as to what made them killers. And the other part of it, that they were able to get away with it for so long. And, of course, back then we didn't have DNA. So a lot of things have changed. And do we have serial killers today? No, we don't have any serial killers. Uh, it's a, serial killers are kind of a rare breed right now. It's mass shooters have taken over. And everybody, you know, talks about, oh, a lot of people were killed, a lot of victims. Yeah, these are mass shootings, and many of them occur in, you know, what, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and it's all over with. Now, the serial killers were going on for years, and some of them were 10 years, and almost 15 years they were out there killing their victims. Uh, and the difference today is when we have the mass shooters, they're generally either shot right there on the spot or they're captured right on the spot. Uh, and they're not able to repeat the crime uh, of uh, mass shooting. But the serial killers were able to go back into society, blend in, and we have the Grim Reaper. I mean, he went on for, uh, I don't know, what was it, five, eight, ten years, where he didn't do any killing and then came back. You find yourself still kind of trailing different murder cases or serious cases even in your area even though you're retired well i can't say that i do i keep abreast as far as what's going on in the community um you know it, it's kind of interesting as far as uh maybe you have had enough in your life uh you know i'm talking about thousands of homicide cases that i worked on thousands and various stages and I don't know whether you've seen enough. I, I, I just uh, cannot get interested in a lot of the things that are going on now because I realize a lot of it is hype. A lot of it is spin. Uh, and very seldom do you know all the facts. And, you know, when you're going to speculate about a crime or whether somebody's guilty or not, you really need to know what are the facts of that case. And nowadays it doesn't come out. You know, it's like, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, the news media, not to criticize the news media, but, oh, you, know, yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they come on uh, the scene and there's a traffic accident. And they show a horrific traffic accident. And the, several people are killed. They got uh, sheets over them and, you know, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, you as an observer wonder, okay, what was it all about? But to me, it leaves. The, the camera leaves and you never know. What was it all about? What was that accident? Was it a DUI? Was it speeding? Was it something else? There is no follow-through on many of you. Never know the facts of the case. So your, your question is, do I want to watch these? No, I really don't care to watch them. If I knew all the facts, I would most likely find it more interesting. But I don't, I don't find it interesting the way they're reported nowadays. Yeah, and there's a lot of secondhand, like with the uh, podcast world and the and the whole true crime scene, like even, um, 
you know, so I hear about all this stuff about the Dahmer series, right? And uh, first episode I could hardly get through because they've already totally made it up. <laughs> you know, they've totally made up even what the neighbor is and, and who she was. And, and it, it just, it, so right away I get kind of bothered that, okay, they've made this whole fictional thing up to try and get people all scared and outraged. And it's like, well, and the worst part is that you'll see on social media people are buying into it and going, oh, yeah, you know, why didn't the police do something with that neighbor? There never was a neighbor. No, you, Alan, you're like right. I'm trying to, that is it. <laughs> Uh, it is done for entertainment. Now, uh, we use that term docudrama, docudrama. And, you know, the drama part needs to be stressed uh, because a lot of it is not a document of facts. It's that we're trying to fit it all into uh, 55 minutes or we're trying to make it palatable. We're trying to make it so that somebody will continue watching. So, you know, you have to understand the motive of the media, and you know, they, they have a job to do. They're trying to make it interesting, and to make it interesting, you're going to have to take some shortcuts. And uh, that uh, gives us very distorted view to the public, and it's kind of unfortunate, uh, the reaction it has for the public. Uh, so do you look at people differently? Well, I suppose, you know, after a while you become suspicious, and, and I think in, in judging people, uh, I find it very difficult because so many times we're wrong in judging other people. Uh, they, they have certain characteristics or certain traits or something, and we just make an assumption, okay, that they are doing this or doing that. Now, uh, okay, let me just use an example of the phone calls. You know, I get a lot of phone We all get a lot of phone calls, and somebody's trying to sell you something. And... How many of those people do you believe that make these cold phone calls to you? You don't. You turn it off. And I think sometimes when you've seen so much of it, uh, you just kind of turn it off and no, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to deal with that. You know, that person is scamming me. And there's so much fraud that goes on today and it's accepted. I mean, you know, it, how society has changed in the sense that, uh, you know, stealing, oh, you know, Maybe they needed it. Maybe they need more than you need, uh, or redistribution of wealth. So, yeah, you kind of look at people differently, but I don't think it's because of my job. I think it's just the, the way that uh, things have gone in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Well, I'm curious in your, in your, career, your law career or even writing books, when, when you're dealing with some of the more horrific crimes, did you or do you now have to do something to blow off steam or decompress after going through and um, maybe documenting some of the stuff? Is, is, is there something that you do to, uh, to, to, to deal with that? He eats donuts. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't eat donuts, but there's other things I might eat that I should be eating. Um, as far as decompressing, um, what I have enjoyed as far as after retirement, I mean, when I was working, uh, it was very busy. I mean... I got up in the morning and I went to work and I generally had 15 to 25 homicide cases that I was working on at some stage. And you're always looking at the calendar. Okay, which one's going to trial first? You know, when is the next hearing on this one? You know, when does this have to be done? See, I did a lot of work at the end. I was 
the head of what we call the trial support, meaning the cases would come to me at the beginning, and I would work with the person who was assigned to prosecute the case, and we would go over the evidence, uh, what facts, what witnesses, you know, what's going to be introduced, and we would develop a logical way of presenting it to the jury. And a lot of work goes into that. You know, you may think that it just, uh, oh, you just, you know, take the first witness or take the first. No, you do it in a logical order. Which is going to have the greatest impact on the jury? What are they going to remember and how are they going to remember it? So, as to your question, uh, most of my time was really occupied by a schedule. Uh, we had so many cases, so many things that had to be done, so much thought had to go into it. And, you know, you're not sitting back, you know, relaxing. You just think, okay, I, tomorrow this thing has to be done. You know, it's going to go to the jury tomorrow for argument. And, you know, we've got to have everything ready to go, make sure that uh, uh, everything is finished as far as the exhibits and uh, all the documentation. So, no, it, it isn't in a respect that you, you think about relaxing and, and taking it easy, you don't. It, it's, you're kind of on a treadmill, and it's moving. It's constantly moving, and you don't stop. Now, when I got retired, then I could look back on things uh, at the cases, and you try to make some sense out of them. So I wrote a lot of books. I've written, I don't know, about 43 true crime books. And they take cases... And you, you walk through the cases and you show how the investigation was done, how they tracked down uh, the suspect. And then the case is presented to the district attorney's office for the charges. And then we prepare the case, how it's going to be presented to the jury. And I go into that in my writing as to, you know, what the strategy was, you know, what we were going to do and how we were going to present it. And... Then you break it down. How did, how was it presented to the jury in the courtroom? Because a lot of things are going on in the courtroom that the public never sees. It's behind the scenes because there's a lot of hearings as to what evidence is going to be admissible. A lot of things uh, are not you know, presented to the jury for various reasons. There are objections by the defense, and so you can't present certain things, and you don't know about that until the very last minute. So those are the things that you're spending a lot of time, and it's interesting when I'm writing, I can spend the time looking at it and explaining uh, to somebody who's interested, or a reader, okay, this is what we did and why we did it and how we went about doing it. So uh, the actual trying of cases and working on the cases in the DA's office, that was different than when I had the time to sit back and write about it. Let's talk about where people can find you. Now, do you have a website? Do you have social media you like to interact? you want to give out a phone number? <laughs> uh, how would you like people to find you? Well, it's, it's up to what they want. Uh, you know, the world is made up of many people. Some people love true crime. Uh, other people, uh, it's too harsh. They don't like the, the true crime. They want to have a, a mystery, a novel. They want something... That's softer. So I do true crime, and that's all I do. And it's on cases that I worked on that I know something about, either through our, the DA's office. So I have my uh, web page, which is uh, Ronald E. Bauer's True Crime Writer. Uh, but 
most of my books, it, I have a lot of books uh, with Amazon, and uh, if, if people are interested in certain areas, I have a whole series on uh, true crime stories, uh, got a lot of books on that, and then I have a group called uh, Delta Force, and these are the top prosecutors. I mean, I worked with some people that are so good. I just marvel at They know the right thing to say at the right time. They're just very, very uh, skilled, uh, great litigators. So I wrote a number of books, I think four books, about uh, top gun prosecutors. And a lot of people like that because they want to know, okay, what type of person? How did they handle that? And then I had a, a third group, which was called the Sherlock Holmes uh, series, and that dealt with the detectives. Some of the detectives I worked with, well, LAPD, with the L.A. sheriffs, and all the other uh, police departments in L.A. County, some of them are just fascinating. They are, uh, and I, I, what is the word to use, tenacious. Uh, some of them had a sixth sense. They knew how to look in various places, and they wouldn't give up. So I wrote this series uh, uh, called Sherlock Holmes Series. So what I give readers is, depending what you want to read about, if you want to read just the stories, uh, the true crime series is good. If you want to, with prosecutors, professional, uh, the, the series on Delta Force, uh, prosecutors is good. And the, if you want to know about detectives, uh, the serial the Sherlock Holmes series is, is good there. So there's a whole myriad of things. The thing that I do a lot right now is my podcast that comes out every Friday at 3 o'clock. It's called True Crime Files of Los Angeles. And it takes an individual case that I worked on or know something about, and it explains that in a podcast, very, uh, you know, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, and... That's fascinating because I do it in a visual form. It's, you know, I, I show the different uh, crime photos, the different things that were presented to the jury, the charts, the maps. It's very visual. So if, if somebody really is interested in a visual presentation of one of these famous cases out of Los Angeles County, uh, look at my uh, True Crime Files of Los Angeles podcast because uh, some people like it. Instead of having to read the book, they would rather, you know, get it free out of, off of a podcast. So that that one's on uh, YouTube. So those that want that. So there's a whole series of things that people are interested. Uh, more than happy to have them take a look at it. Of course, we'll have your website up on ours so people can find you with one click. Again, it's been a pleasure. So, Mr. Ronald E. Bowers, thank you for being on the show. Well, Alan, it's been my pleasure. Uh, maybe we can do it again. I hope so. Thanks, Ronald. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.